I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell Sanders. And you're listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. Uh, we have okay. kind of a serious episode <laughs> planned today, but yes. I do want to just give one quick pop culture recommendation because I saw probably the best show I've seen all year, and it's called Ben. <sighs> it is this beautifully accurate depiction of female friendship. There's great world building about the skateboarding community in the East Village that doesn't require like dragons or spaceships. And I really like that sense of world building. I like that. Um, Sarah, is that on HBO Max? I think it is. I think you can get any. I know HBO is in flux or right HBO. now. Yep. Yes. I, yeah. No one knows what's going on with HBO. <laughs> There's just six episodes and they're 25 minutes. So I can't recommend it highly enough. Mm, yeah, I've heard that it is great. I have not figured out how to access it, so I'm glad that someone I know has. Yes, <laughs> I was like, I'll well, what is this on? Um, yes, that sounds excellent. I actually have a really quick one too. It's called Disclosure. It's on Netflix, and it is a documentary about sort of the history of trans media representation um, in fil- in U.S. film and television. Every single person who speaks in it is a trans person. There's like, you know, no framing of anyone else's perspective, which I think is really, really different and really cool. And I learned a lot from it and it made me really happy and it made me really sad. And I highly, highly recommend it also on Netflix. That one keeps popping up for me. I'll have to give it a watch. Yeah, I think it's great. One of my favorite parts just really quickly is when Laverne Cox is talking about when she got cast on Orange is the New Black and she's like yeah I was like you know I'm gonna do this web series I don't think anyone's gonna see it (laughs) and then it ended up being like the biggest thing we are thrilled to be joined by Molly Bond and Michelle Putch of the Defund WPD organization. This year's city budget included a $254,320 increase allotted for the Worcester Police Department, bringing the total WPD budget to $52.76 million. Over the next 45 minutes, we're hoping to find out exactly what Molly and Michelle mean when they ask our city officials to defund the police. So I was hoping we could all kind of, if you're comfortable, start by acknowledging who we are. Um, I know I had shot over a few questions, and then maybe Molly can give us some historic background. Um, Does anyone start? (laughs) How about Molly (laughs) O'Connor? I was going to say, I'll go next. Um, Yeah, I am Molly O'Connor. And part of the reason we're doing this is to just clarify, like, I am a middle-class white person. I grew up in a suburb. Um, which is a place that really doesn't have a huge police presence at any given time. And, you know, it's like the police come when they get called, that kind of place. I And then I went to school. I went to a liberal arts school in Boston where I was, I always joke that I was like radicalized. Um, <laughs> but that is sort of my general background as like, uh, I'm a middle class white woman educator. That's where I'm at. Michelle? Um, yeah, so kind of the same thing. I live in like a middle class neighborhood. Um, I've always been kind of like obsessed with like civic engagement and trying to get people more involved in the community. So when I found out that I could join the Defund WPD organization, I just thought that would be pretty sick. 
Um, <laughs> I go to a college here in Worcester, so it's nice to get more involved. Nice. And Molly B? Hello. I similarly was raised in a suburb, um, a largely Irish Catholic suburb. Um, and I went to Clark here in Worcester, and I'm a lesbian, feminine type person. Um, and just over the course of the years, um, the Mike Brown, um, his murder was when I was a freshman in college. And I, after that is kind of when my like consciousness of the evils of policing kind of grew out of that as I, you know, did college, was there for five years um, and moved back to Worcester. And yeah, just been getting more, like learning more and more about it as it becomes more central in the, the um, you know, cultural lexicon. Wonderful. And I'm Sarah. I'm also a white woman. And I was raised right here in the beautiful city of Worcester. Um, <laughs> I would say poor and then lower middle class toward the end of my upbringing. And currently, I guess I would classify myself as upper middle class. So there's definitely some bias that comes along with my perspective. Um, I always like to point out that while I don't have a direct connection to uh, the police per se. My husband does work in politics in the city of Worcester. And so a lot of the information I get is through a very specific lens. So that's why I really want to hear what you guys have to say, um, because I feel like you come from, in, in many ways, a different end of the spectrum. Yeah. Molly, did you want to um, give us some background? Yeah. yeah, I was just going to do like a quick sort of rundown of just like what we're actually going to be discussing today. Um, and so as Sarah said, Molly and Michelle are joining us from our, our hyper-local Defund WPD um, organization, which I think it is awesome that we have this kind of engagement in our city, first of all. But um, we, so we are going to be talking about what that actually means and what the Defund Worcester Police Department is looking to accomplish. Um, and I will say there's two, there's two kind of really important things that I that I think we should sort of point out and then a couple other that are sort of related to that. The first one is that a large percentage of the work um, scholarly and otherwise that has been done on this type of um, on defunding and abolition has been done by black women and trans people. Um, so a lot of that, a lot of that framework is coming from that perspective. And I also think it's very, it's vital that um, we connect defunding police and what we're going to be talking about with the abolition movement at large. What that means is that the prison industrial complex at large, which is the, the systems that, lead us to incarceration and the systems that lead us to those types of punitive um, measures are all related to this one framework. Um, and that abolition framework is what sort of helps us to, to understand that the system as it is, police, prison, justice, et cetera, is working as it's designed. It's not, people like to say that the system is broken. I think a lot of people, especially folks who come from privilege, are like, oh my gosh, the system is broken. And really it, it works as it's designed. And this is a framework that sort of helps us see that. Um, and then there's just a couple of key people that are really important to credit with really um, bringing this to light in the US especially. And that would be Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore who um, founded Critical Resistance in 1997. They had a conference in 1998. And that is a 
basically an abolitionist organization that works nationally and locally, um, regionally to, you know, take these ideas to the next level. Angela Davis wrote Our Prisons Obsolete in 2003. Ruth Wilson Gilmore wrote Golden Gulag in 2007. But these ideas have been around as early as the 1980s in the United States, even earlier than that. And then there's been philosophy from, you know, a lot of European nations and here even earlier than that. But um, then the the other the last key person I just want to point out is Miriam Kaba. She is the founder of NIA Foundation, the NIA Foundation, and she is currently really kind of the foremost activist in this arena who's bringing it to a public stage. Um, and she actually found this work through critical resistance, which I think is really important because it really is all connected. Um, and she sort of defines what this looks like as a total dismantling of prison and policing while bringing building up community services. And I think we're going to get a little bit more into that. But that's just sort of a very, very general framework of what we're kind of going to be looking at. And now I think we're ready. <laughs> Uh, I think yeah. that's great. And it seems like your understanding of policing is so much more concrete than mine. And I really am in this fluid kind of in-between space where I'm just trying to educate myself. So my first question is, what do you mean when you say defund the police? Does it mean dismantle the police department? Does it mean like use funds to train officers as social workers? What are some of the fundamental reforms that you're really looking for? So, uh, Defund WPD, we initially, it kind of just got thrown into the hands of different, like, isolated organizers throughout Worcester. Um, it came to our attention that um, the city council budget that was passed um, last week um, would be adding $250,000 to the police budget. So we got that information. So we immediately organized around, okay, we can't let this happen. We can't let the police uh, budget increase. Um, so we organized around that goal, calling into, you know, city council meetings, um, sending emails to our counselors. Um, and from there, that was our short-term goal and our long-term goal, um, is aligned with that of, um, you know, the larger Black Lives Matter movement, that being abolition of prisons and policing. And, um, as for like defunding the police, um, when you said like we could like train officers more, we're really looking towards goals where um, when there is some kind of like health problem in the community, we're looking for um, people that aren't armed to come to um, issues and crimes like that. So we'd be looking towards um, um, not training, like not working with the police departments, like defunding is the first step. So that first $250,000 was our, you know, our initial goal. Um, but we're not looking to our ideology being based in that of the, um, you know, the theorists and the activists that Molly O mentioned. Um, we're not looking to work with police. Um, we don't think police should exist. Oh, sorry. So I was just going to add in that. And to be clear too, like that to that $250,000 was not, um, that would have just been level funding the police. Um, I think a lot of people were like, oh, you know, you're taking away, but that's not what that was. It was an added 
it was a, it was an added amount of money, um, and that's why people were upset about it, especially in this climate, because it because not giving them that two hundred fifty thousand dollars was not taking anything away from the budget that they had. It was just it was just going to be level funding them. To so jump in with that, so people know. <laughs> And I think what like really got a lot of people upset was um, on June first when there was the like the whole protest turning violent from the um, police. Like it, it just seemed really shameful to watch. Like you know the city give more money to the police. Like they don't really deserve a reward for that. I will say I've always thought of Worcester as a city that really operates under this guardian philosophy, like the taxpayers are being protected and we have a strong community policing effort. But seeing that footage was the first time I felt there was more of a warrior philosophy within the department where like everyone was in riot gear and there is this marching chant that they were yelling out. And I was just surprised, you know, it's not something that we see every day in Worcester. But I am curious about how you're feeling in terms of police officers being looked at as guardians or warriors, because I'm a, a writer in the city and like, I've had some great experience going on ride alongs with cops. Now I assume they put me with some excellent officers. Um, but that really endeared me to the relationships that those officers had built and the community policing that was taking place. Um, we have uh, a friend who runs something called the gang camp and um, they like teach boxing um, every summer and pair up officers with youth. I know that the Maine South CDC has facilitated great police youth dialogues where they try to form relationships between youth and police over the last five years. So are you guys supporting all these great programs that seem to be taking place or would the dismantling of the police effectively get rid of those things? Because I'd be worried about that. I think part of abolition um, means, you know, we don't ab abolish police and then not make up for the things that might be of service to the community. Um, so camps and um, other like community service type things. If we were to dismantle the Worcester Police Department, we'd have $52 million and we could put that towards similar type um, community engagement things, not run by, you know, the the soldiers of an institution that's rooted in slavery. We're not, um, we believe that those kinds of things can be provided if we were to reallocate the funds away from the armed people. I also wanted to talk a little bit about school resource officers because Molly and I um, were both educators in addition to the work we do in the media. And for the last 10 years, I worked in a suburban district. This was my first year as a Worcester Public Schools teacher. I will say I have not seen a resource officer in the one year, almost a year, except for the quarantine period, but in the year <laughs> I was in the Worcester Public Schools. Um, and I don't know if that's a good or a, a bad thing, but as a teacher, I especially remember after the Sandy Hook shooting, feeling kind of grateful for having a school resource officer around every day. And I remember going to him and saying like, man, officer, it feels like I have an air marshal on my plane, like somebody to protect us in case of a shooting. Um, but with that said, like my own white privilege kind of gives me this notion that police are protectors and I can trust them. And so I, I'm not exactly sure 
how the students of color in the suburban district who are few and far between react to the presence of a police officer. Um, now, Molly, I don't know if you want to talk a little more about that. I did have one negative experience with school resource officers that I'll address as well, but can these be positive presences in our schools? Um, Sarah mentioned that we, and we have seen, like you said, like in our, in the suburban district in which we teach, there are, are positive interactions, you know, between especially like our younger students and a police officer. But one of the really important things to point out is that for a lot of these kids in this, um, as Sarah said, it's a ex primarily white district, um, huge majority white. That is probably the only interaction that they are going to have with police their whole adolescence, like their whole childhood and adolescence, they're, they're, that is very likely to be their only vision of what a police officer does, who, they, like what the police are. And actually, just really quick, there was a great, someone asked a question of Alexand Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez about what defunded police look like. And she said, it looks like a suburb, you know we have this idea that we can't this and now this is me talking but like that her main answer was it looks like a suburb a lot of what the abolition movement has to do with is imagining is able being able to take the system as it is out of the equation and imagining how we can turn this these programs into something different uh mariam kaba who i mentioned earlier talked about the city of Chicago, where she lived, and she said, you know, there are places that you can go where police abolition already exists. She brought up the neighborhood of Naperville in Chicago. She said they these children have beautiful schools. They get access to great education. There are no metal detectors. They live in, um, they all live in homes. They are food secure. They never see police officers. And that is just a neighborhood away from other areas of Chicago who cannot envision a world without seeing police officers every single day. Um, so it exists. It just is what our, you know, our affluent suburbs look like. Um, and so for a lot of the kids that see the school resource officers in those types of neighborhoods and in those types of school districts, they're like, oh, our friendly officers coming, you know, because that is what their vision is. Sarah, you can jump back in with your story. Oh, I'd love to just hear from Michelle and Molly too. So in terms of school resource officers, what sort of information can you provide? Like how would those resources be replaced? Um, and do you think that it could ever be an effective arrangement to have law enforcement who is constantly a presence in schools, especially in light of school shootings? I'm curious, I don't know, like, act like, I don't have a detailed knowledge of like all the school shootings across the country, but have school resource officers ever stopped a school shooting from happening? No, they have never stopped a school shooting. <laughs> um, they were placed. Yes, they were placed into schools after Columbine um, and a school resource officer has never stopped a school shooting. But there's a preventative nature of having someone there the same way that you might not hijack a plane if you think there's an air marshal on the plane. I guess that's my thinking is that if uh a student struggling with their mental health who is planning to execute a school shooting knows that there's a police officer in their building every day, are they less likely to then carry out their plan? 
And there's no easy answer to that. It's just something that's crossing right. mind. Well, I will say that part of this framework too is envisioning like, or is taking into account the idea that the p- policing and like incarcerate in, in the carceral system take violence and they meet it with violence. So it's like, how can we take the idea that like when you punish someone, you're harming them more. And like Sarah, if this is a person who's going to come in and is like planning to do a school shooting, what has harmed them and how can we make them accountable for wanting to or for for either doing that action or wanting to do that action that isn't further harming them, I guess. And so for a, a lot of students, seeing a police officer in their school feels like more violence to them as opposed to a security measure. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, building on that, if, you know, the funds that are allocated towards a school resource officer were to be invested in a social worker, an adjustment counselor that might have, you know, noticed if we had more eyeballs on the students and noticed that this student doesn't seem to be doing well, they're having a mental health issue. Um, how could that have been prevented? Um, rather than, you know, the day of this student walking in with a gun and then a cop being there, like, I think that if we were to take a long-term approach, we would be investing in not allowing that child to, or that person to get to that point mentally. I work, like I said, in a suburban district that has, is pretty, is, you know, fairly well-funded as far as a school district goes for a community that is, you know, middle-class majority white. Um, And we just, I believe last school year in in one of our schools met the like recommended um, ratio of students to school counselors like last year in 2019, 2020. Um, And that's a suburban school district. So like you have to imagine then what is it, what are those numbers look like for urban school districts that can't meet even those types of quotas and ratios, which is crazy to me to think about. I didn't want to, you know, purely put my support behind SROs either. I've definitely had negative experiences. In particular, I, you know, I I did a student teaching practicum in the Bronx, um, where there were security security guards on every floor of the high school where I worked. Um, And then I ended up in the suburban district. It was my very first job. I think I was 21 my first year. I stayed for six years, but I butted heads with so many people because my view of the world was just quite different. Probably the biggest falling out I had was there was another teacher who brought in an officer to demonstrate what it was like to read the Miranda rights. Um, And they cuffed one of the students. And then a few weeks later, he did a a mock slave auction to teach about the slave trade. I had a lot of concerns about this particular colleague, um, but the administration didn't seem quite as concerned and just his lessons were so ingrained in the school culture. And my superintendent was such a wonderful mentor to me. And she eventually granted me a transfer request at my, you know, my urging um, to go work for a very strong female leader in one of the other schools. And that was a much better fit for me. But just the idea of 
being a student of color in that classroom where you're watching people be handcuffed by the police officer, you know, and, and making light of all of these things, I, it really, really, it made my blood boil. Um, so I don't know if you have thoughts about youth and police relations at all or what that would actually look like without the funding or if you took away the funding of the Worcester PD. I guess just to give a little more context, I was reading a Vox article that said um, every little kid in the world knows how to call 911. They can summon someone with a, a gun in three seconds or less. Every kid knows. But if you said to a kid, you need to call a mental health professional, they would have no <laughs> idea what to do, right? So how can we address our young people, shift the narrative for them, and urge them to like take social emotional approaches before militaristic ones? I think that starts with you know the overall cultural conversation of like if we want the kids to shift from being like I need someone with a gun to show up right now towards I need a social worker to show up right now um so that I think that starts with defunding the police um putting it some the money somewhere else um and then with that as our culture as our institutions start to shift it'll um the way that we respond to these things will shift as well um so we're not saying that like, you know, we're defunding the police. Therefore, if you call 911, like you're, there's nothing, no one's going to come and help you. Um, <laughs> but in how many situations where the cops are called, um, is a gun necessary? Is, you know, all the biases, all of the poison that is integrated into the system of policing, is that necessary for this, you know, mental health issue? Is that, is that what we need? Or can we reimagine um, a whole different thing? So a lot of this is radical. Like we need to think radically. We need to imagine something completely different if we're going to address the issues like police murdering people. We need to completely reimagine stuff. We have to get creative. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point. And I also think that part of it, part of that imagining is not just um related to dismantling and defunding but it's also related to making the making those systems obsolete and that even goes to like the social work aspect like yes absolutely there should be people who are equipped to deal with the problems that may arise to deal with them but how do we make those problems less lesser how do we how do we minimize the problem of widespread mental health issues, especially in, you know, poor communities? How do we lessen the effects of robbery and violence by making areas food secure and changing the pattern of generational wealth among uh, marginalized communities? So that's a big part of it, too, is it's it's like, yes, let's bring the people in who are qualified to deal with those things, because that's another problem. Part of it is that police and there have been police officers that have said this that are like, I'm, you know, you're asking us us to do too much, which is really true. Like we are asking so much of them. We're asking them to be five different people. It's not like it's they're not Barbie, you know, but part of it is beyond that. Yeah. Imagining it's imagining what the future can look like when these things don't even need to be necessarily in mainstream widespread day to day practice. What can our world look like? 
which is radical. Like you said, <laughs> it's totally radical. What does the transition period look like? I always give ideators a hard time. People that like put on their LinkedIn profile that that's their job, <laughs> ideators. I'm like, okay, great. You came up with an idea, but let's talk about actually practically putting it into practice. So what would the transition period look like? I think initially, like, you know, you would take that money. And I think um, the mayor said something about this, too. He said that, you know, part of youth crime going down so much is he would put more money and funding into um, youth jobs. So I think, you know, like just defunding the police, just like putting that money towards like the smaller things, you know, make them bigger and go from there. As we deconstruct policing, we're rebuilding, reinvesting and revamping services that could have been solving these problems all along. You know, investing in housing, investing in, like everyone else has said, schools and in healthcare. Um, so as we are theoretically taking money, so the $52 million, a third of the Worcester City budget, away from the cops um, and reinvesting them, we're rebuilding as we go. Beyond just funding, I'm curious if you saw last night the Board of Health asked for some sweeping reform and they especially wanted to get records of police misconduct. Um, what are your thoughts on that, on not just defunding the police, but enforcing reforms to get rid of the bad cops, so to speak? I mean, you can't really, there, I don't know if this is the kind of content you're looking for, but there are no good cops. None none of them are separate from the roots of the institution. So while a person might become a police officer for noble reasons of wanting to, you know, protect their community and, you know, we're all told the story that cops are the good guys or white people are taught that cops are the good guys. Um, but there are, there are no good cops and the whole like bad apple situation. Like that's not, we need to move past that. We need to move past like there are bad cops and good cops because that, if that's been the conversation, for however long people, black people are still cops are still lynching black people um so if we spend all of our time reforming and weeding out the bad cops like for sure we should have the reports be published of like hey man like this cop did this bad thing in this year and um for sure they should be losing their jobs um but for sure that's like not that's just tip of the iceberg type of thing of being like oh so this cop did this violent thing and yet they still have their job, let's expose him. Um, yeah. I think that goes into the point of like, the system of policing comes from, like we just mentioned, it comes from c catching slaves, quashing labor riots um, against the wealthy, like, as time went on, they were used for different things, but it was literally like, let's catch runaway slaves. Okay, now we're going to quash labor riots and riots against the rich and moving on from there. So it's all about like, or it started, the roots of policing are in suppressing marginalized communities. That's And that kind of goes back to another thing that Mariam Kaba points out, which is like, she says, so when you see an, a police officer pressing his knee into a black man's neck until he dies, that's the logical result of policing in America. So she's using the framework of like what the system is based in. Um, she says, when a police officer brutalizes a black brutalizes a black person, he is doing what see, he sees as his job, and that is 
again, bringing this to a systemic conversation. We said it's like, yes, someone absolutely can enter the police force with, um, you know, a noble outlook. Like they want to help the community for sure. And like you can know that person in real life and say, oh, you know, that's the nicest guy. He's or, you know, so and so is like, you know, really kind, really generous, really funny. But it's the system that they are a part of. They are brings the whole thing into a, I think it just a different perspective when you're like, oh, okay, so like this is what policing is. This is where policing comes from. So these people are all part of this system that, you know, maintains status quo, that keeps marginalized communities suppressed. And I think like, you know, like even though you might have some good experiences with cops, it doesn't really negate like the fact that like, you know, all of them are really under this broken system. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, like, it just doesn't, there are still people, like Molly said, there are still people being lynched for the color of their skin, and we need to do something about that. Yeah, like, we as white people, um, having positive interactions with police, like, that that means literally nothing when cops are terrorizing black and brown and poor communities. Our, our individual positive relationships or perceptions of, like, oh, officer, whoever, like, it's not important. I just, I, I guess I need to move beyond this, but I have such a hard time with the notion that there are no good cops. I just think of people like, like, we have a friend who's in the gang unit, and he started this camp, and it's amazing, the relationships that they've built. I Like, I would just have such a hard time saying that he's a bad cop. I understand the institution is fundamentally flawed. Um, right. But so if we bring it back to then, like, why, why are those neighborhoods susceptible to gang activity? And this is nothing to do with right that individual person. Right. But it's like, why are those neighborhoods susceptible to gang activity? What is what is keeping these communities suppressed? So it's like it's the whole system, too. And it, like I said, and I think I just want to go back to this. It's it goes beyond just policing. It's the whole complex. It's the um, you know ma- mass incarceration. So it's the whole umbrella of it, and that it is very. I, I totally understand, Sarah. Like I, it is so hard to be like, well, wait, like that's a good guy. And I think um, I don't remember if it was Molly or Michelle a little earlier said, okay, so like that's you know that is that's a that's a camp at its roots, right? So like, could we take that away from, that's something that could still operate easily as just like a community program. And I, cause I think it is like, the idea of that is like, yeah, like how do we take these kids who may, you know, be in a neighborhood that's susceptible to that and still care for them and still provide them with that safety net. And you can still do that. So, Let's say, yeah, gang camp goes on, right, Uh, even without funding the police. What about the question of the unions? Like, how do you dismantle the most powerful union in the nation? It's just overwhelming to me to even think about. (laughs) Hopefully we'd start, Um, you know, just like locally. Uh, I think that's what we're trying to do right now. I'm not too sure on like the union stuff, but I, I think another thing is just we have to separate you know, the person from the profession. And, you know, there might be some good people, but there are no good cops. And like, 
um, it, and I know like it might be hard to understand that because you know there there are some good people in that profession, but really they're all upholding a system that doesn't do right by everyone. And I think before uh, before we start, we get to like dismantle the police unions, we need to get on board with the fact that there are no good cops. Like we're not going to dismantle this evil institution while still holding in our heart, like those positive interactions we've had, like we need to move past that if we're going to take on stuff like this. Yeah, I think that viewing it as a system is just like a really vital way to see the framework. Um, like, like you guys were saying, it really is about like pulling one from the other. I do want to say to Sarah's point about the unions, I think that's a really good question because they are incredibly part of the reason that a lot of these officers the so the you know the so-called bad apples get away with the stuff that they get away with you know the reason that brett chauvin um had 17 complaints against him and never got fired is because of these unions they have immense power there's a movement right now within the labor community to basically kick them out of you know the larger the larger movement um so there's been a movement like the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, has sent an open letter to the AFL-CIO being like, listen, we want police unions out of this organization. We don't think that they are allies to us. We don't think that they are workers in the same way that other folks are. Um, and so that's been, you know, that's the start of something. And I don't know what the answer is to that question. I think that's a very good question. Um, but there is something happening where some workers are saying, well, wait a minute, are you like allied with us? Are you p part of our movement? Because we don't know if you are. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the way that they operate. Police unions in many situations are coercive. Um, I have seen on more than one occasion the benevolent officers union in the city of New York City, of the, or the city of New York, like send Bill de Blasio, like, like basically threatening open letters and like statements. So it's it is fascinating the power that they have. And then I think that is a really good question. And some of this is just really about asking these questions. Some of what this framework proposes is like, how do we ask the questions that even get us to these points? And I think that's a really good one. And I think it's safe to say that um, the Worcester Police Union, at least like, you know, they just recently kicked out a former black gay police officer because he supported the Black Lives Matter movement and police reform just recently. And it, it just seems like, you know, the unions don't really want the best for all their workers, which is not exactly what unions should be for. And I also think that it, um, it would be important to like, you know, look into like the legislations with that, like the Qualified Immunity Act. I feel like, you know, people need to look at taking that down. Now, Michelle, where can we learn more about that officer's story? Because I, I like to think that I'm like super tuned in to local media, but I haven't heard that at all. Yeah. So um, if you go on the Facebook page, Defund WPD, they um, just shared a post about that. His name's Al Tony. And um, he wrote a Facebook post that was just like, I, you know, I was just kicked out of the page. Um, I really wanted to like support Black Lives Matter and police reform, but they wouldn't let me. And um, mm -hmm. Basically, like there was an officer that told him that there was no discrimination in the workforce, and it it just seemed a little toxic. 
The yeah, his story. I did see his story. I also just looked. I saw the one that was on Facebook. There is also a Worcester Magazine story from 2016 about his sort of journey within the department and what happened when he um, he was shot on the job and just some of the experiences that he had. So there is a news story about him as well. Was it a recent termination or are these two separate incidents? The, so he has not been a police officer for about for over 20 years. Oh, wow. Um, so he in the Facebook post, he discusses he discussed like the more recent developments that Michelle was talking about. And then there were there was a lot of stuff that went on while he was a police officer and immediately following that um, make for a fascinating um, and really sad story just about. It is, again, like a, a str- about the structure of, you know, that the good old boys club of how the, a lot of these departments work. But yeah, so that right. They were yeah two separate incidents where like recently he had some issues that he just w- wanted to speak about. And then in the past, he had been fighting for recognition as a police officer. Well, I want to thank you for sharing some of this information, helping to inform my opinion, because. I have spent a lot of time trying to educate myself about anti-racism lately, and the police argument is so entwined with all of that. I I just, there's so much to learn. Um, Is there anything that either Michelle or Molly, you haven't had a chance to say yet that you would definitely want our listeners to know? I would say uh, get on board and get on board fast. (laughs) Abolition. Gonna have to give me another. Uh, but where can we find you guys? Like, what? Like, if I hop on my computer phone or whatever, where can we find you guys? At defund Sorry, it doesn't apply. WPD. Instagram. We're on Twitter. It is like, we're on Facebook as well. It is kind of like a weird, just grouping of letters. Like, it's like, it's kind of a jumble. Um, <laughs> But yeah, and I think another thing too, and part of the reason we wanted to do this is because a lot of people, it's not just like Sarah or whoever, it's just like people are like, well, wait, what does this mean? Like, this sounds crazy. Um, And I think that continuing the conversation is just a really healthy way to say like, here's what we're talking about when we talk about this. Um, You know, and it's not to be coercive or anything like that, but it's just to say like, this is what this framework is and here's why people are supporting it so I think it's awesome that you guys are so vocal about it yeah and I think the um like the main point of like like defunding like we say defunding but I guess people don't really know like that it's more about reallocating the money and we did like you know like that our whole thing is to defund mm-hmm. but I think like the you know you got to look into like that we want it it's like it's not um a sprint it's a marathon so we got to like mm. look into putting the um funds towards other places like little by little well I will I haven't made up my mind yet but I will say the more resources we can pour into social emotional learning in our schools the better because the lasting implications of that are incredible yeah and we don't put enough funding in education when we really need to like I, <laughs> just like yeah in the, the council meetings like you know you like you hear like 
teachers going like, I have to use my own paycheck for all this. And it's, it's not fair. Like when, you know, the police have like all this riot gear and of course they, they don't have like the tear gas or other things. They have like this pepper spray balls and they have like all this other stuff. And it's just like, not fair. It almost seems like absurd. Like, not even absurd in, like, like oh, that's crazy, like, absurd in, like, a theater of the absurd kind of way. Like, if you were to take, like, what and be like, hello, I bought, I spent thousands of dollars on this stuff, and then, like, look, and then just, like, look at a picture of, like, the, like, armored vehicles, it is, it's, like, crazy. It's, like, it's, like it almost, you almost want to laugh, because you're just, like, what? <laughs> yeah, especially, like, oh, okay. sorry. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, like, you know, if, and schools are trying to open up in the fall. So, like, how are they going to get all this funding if they're only getting, like, a little bit more than the mandatory spending of schools? One other thing that really blows my mind, and I know you mentioned city council, those counselors, they get paid, like, 20 grand, which means that really for that to be a living wage, you need another job. And you need a job with the flexibility that allows you to go to ribbon cuttings or go to meetings during the the work day, the nine to five work day. And so it's very prohibitive of who can serve, right? So you end up with people who are real estate agents or have flexible work environments. Even the mayor Mm -hmm. works in Boston in finance all day. Being the mayor is his part-time job. Um, So maybe some of the money goes to like paying a full salary to our city councilors that we can have some stronger leadership. And there are some of the city councilors who I think are doing a tremendous job given their very, very few resources. And there are other ones who not so much. (laughs) I think that's a great point. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It is absolutely like an inaccessible position, which we need people from you know, underserved communities to be, to be in. Right. Right. I always um, tease Molly. Yeah. I'm like, you should run, you should run. But like Molly, <laughs> you, you probably, it could not be your full-time job for that. <laughs> no, but with your I'd still have schedule, to work at a restaurant. <laughs> yeah. With your teacher schedule, you can't, you can't run. And I think that's kind of crazy yeah. too. So in order to have strong leadership, we need to have some incentives for that. Well, and I think that kind of just goes to like, Worcester is a real city, so let's, like, act like a real city, you know? <laughs> Pay your city councilors a living wage. I couldn't agree. Um, absolutely. All right. Well, All right. I have been Sarah. I have been Molly. And Michelle and Molly, I am so grateful for your patience and your willingness to help educate myself and our listeners. Um, thank you so, so much, and please keep in touch. Thank you. Yeah, if you got any yeah. questions, thank you guys. I will. You're gonna see my name in your email. <laughs> Good, great. <laughs> thank you so much. Alrighty. Thank you guys. All right. Have a great afternoon. You too. Bye.